Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. Sadly, this week, a couple of things came up for a couple of different people where we just cannot get together and get an episode out. But don't worry, we're going to bring to you another redeploy episode. This is going to go back to episode 101 with John C. McManus. Thought it was only appropriate with the uh, time of the year and uh, the fact that he wrote September Hope. So once again, we sit down with John C. McManus. Um, we go over the process of writing books, talking about Operation Market Garden, PTO, plus much, much more. And we will be back next week. Thank you guys for your continued support. Please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that link. Like and subscribe us on YouTube, Patreon, Facebook, and all of our social media. Thank you guys so much, and we will talk to you all next week. Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And we are back again tonight with a special guest, but I think it would be more than suiting to allow our friend Henry Sledge to introduce our guest. Go ahead, Henry. Well, I'm really proud and excited to introduce our friend John McManus from the Missouri University of Science and Technology. And uh, John's author of numerous books on military history, but his latest book is Island Infernos, which... John, I believe that just came out, correct? It did. It came out about a month ago, Henry. Okay, excellent. Well, it's on my Christmas list along with uh, Fire and Fortitude and probably the one on you did on the 110th, Alamo and the Ardennes. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, I'm really happy to have you in because, I mean, you've got three guys here who are huge fans of your work. I know uh, Don just finished your book, September Hope. Absolutely. Fantastic book. I got some questions for you about it a little bit later, but uh, we'll get to that in due time. So, and then I just finished Americans at Normandy and and right before that, Americans at D-Day. And Jeff is currently working on one of your books, correct, Jeff? Yeah. Deadly Deadly Sky, I was was saying before we went on the air, uh, that's not the only book I've got from you, sir. I did pick up Fire and Fortitude about a year ago when we first uh, got to work together. I haven't got to it yet, but I was telling these guys, you know, if you don't read any books but one about the air war in the Second World War, you can be very savvy on the topic by reading just uh, your, your your Deadly Sky because it just covers, to me, it covers every aspect without going into too much eye-bleeding detail and, and statistics and data. It's just, it's a great flowing book and it's just all-encompassing, you know, it's just incredible and I pointed out to them about the uh, some of the praise that you got from guys like Donald L. Miller and, and, and Gerald Astor and their books, Masters of the Air and The Mighty Eighth, respectively, I read right after uh, yours, just almost in succession. Um, and uh, so just just well done, sir. I just wanted to tell you that just just well done. Thank you for doing it and continuing to do it, because uh, like Don said, and, you know, we're just three guys that are just like minded and, and love your work. And just uh, very uh, thankful to have you here on our on our show and, and to, to talk about it. Well, I, I really appreciate it. Made my night. Thank you so much. I, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> one of the things I want to point out too for the listening audience, if you're not familiar with McManus's work, one shame on you, but two, <laughs> your writing style. It takes all the homework out. You do not feel like you're sitting in history class. I mean, which is not a bad thing if you're listening to this podcast, but there's a lot of people who are still working their way into, you know, getting into leisure reading for the younger listeners out there. Your reading style is fantastic. It's informative. You feel like you're right there, um, especially September Hope. I'm reading this stuff, and I guess, you know, get a little bit out the gate. One of the first questions I have, which Henry brought up, which we haven't talked about, but he kind of introed it, and clearly he's thinking the same thing I did. When it comes to your researching for these books, it seems like you have access to great diaries, first-person accounts. Is it just you, or do you have a team? No, it's just me. Wow. Uh, I do almost all of my research at, uh, at Missouri S&T. Uh, we have a history undergraduate program, you know, so you can get a bachelor's degree in history, but we do not have a graduate program. So I don't have oh, wow. graduate students doing anything like that, and I mean... It, with a tiny exception of, of a few sort of administrative details here and there, like uh, I did a book called Grunts um, Inside yeah. the American Infantry Combat Experience, World War II through Iraq. And I had a student at that time, an undergraduate student, who helped um, line up some photo research for me. 
but with the exception of that, I do pretty much all of it because I, I mean, I love doing it and I, I like having control over it too. I guess I'm kind of a control freak in that right. regard. Um, so everything that goes into these books, I want to make sure that I know where it came from, that, that, uh, you know, that I've been able to, to verify it so much as is possible. And, uh, you know, so it's, uh, maybe a quality control thing too, but I, I just like to work that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That just blows me away. The, the level of first person accounts that you get in these books, um, Jeff and Henry and I were discussing it a while back when we were doing operation market garden and, you know, just from the little bit of reading that and knowledge that we had prior to me reading your book, there's so much about operation market garden that we didn't know about that, you know, and so the amount of information and documentation, first person accounts that you uncovered is just tremendous. And I learned so much more about that operation in, in September hope. And um, that was like the first question. I was like, He's got to have a whole crew of people researching this stuff because there's just so much of it there. So that's just a testament to your passion for the, t- the topic and the subject matter. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I, when I approach a, a topic, I guess I'm kind of an immersion historian. I, I really like to chase down every last source that I think could be relevant or interesting for whatever I, the scope of whatever I'm covering. Um, one of the things that kind of led me in this direction is that it's, you know, I, I think like all, all of you guys very interested in World War II from, from an early age. And it just seemed like when we were kids that, that a lot of the books out there didn't give you much a sense of what it was like for the average soldier, you know, whether in mm-hmm. combat or otherwise. And, and that was a little bit frustrating for me in the sense of wanting to understand the war better. And of course, as I, as I grew a little older, I, I knew, you know, so many veterans too, uh, you know, because we were very fortunate, obviously, to to know so many World War II veterans. And, and I really decided if I'm going to do this kind of work, that it kind of needs to be in that direction of, of, uh, of understanding something of what that might have been like, at least right. from a literary point of view. And uh, so, you know, September Hope, um, what I found was that there were just so many incredible sources that either hadn't been used or were underused or maybe maybe uh, not fully understood in the context of other sources and other accounts that might round out the stories a little bit or, or whatever it would be. Um, and so I, I really hope to give uh, the reader a kind of a, a narrative sense of, okay, here's what's going on. Here's the objective of all this. And here's how these various people fit within it. And here's what happens to them. Uh, and here's why it's significant in the end. And I, you know, so what had led me to the topic initially was that, you know, like all of you, I'm sure you read uh, an incredible book of Bridge Too Far, Cornelius Ryan. Right. I mean, I, I just can't rave on about him enough. It's just an incredible foundational historian. Um, and yet, you know, Bridge Too Far is a pretty big scope. And, and I think there were sort of two gaps in it. One, I think the American airborne experience was really not explored as fully as it, as it could be. And two, I think it overlooked a little bit, maybe by necessity, um, the Skelt Estuary and, and the yeah. you know, sort of how that's a kind of linked story with uh, with Market Garden. And so mm-hmm. I thought, well, maybe there would be you know a book in there for me um, because I, I you know I don't pretend to be an international historian, uh, you know who could who could tell you precisely what's happening, uh, you know on the on the Eastern Front or something or, or whatever. But I can, I think, as an American trained historian, give you a good sense of the American soldier. And I thought that maybe maybe I could uh, create a book with that scope that also showed you what happens to the Skelt Estuary campaign, which is a direct consequence of the failure of Market Garden, mm-hmm. uh, October, November, 1944. So that I thought that maybe that could round out the picture a little bit. And the other thing that I appreciated, which I'm sure the family members did too, is you really shined a spotlight on the contribution of the glider riders. People think Operation Market mm-hmm. Garden, it was all just guys jumping out of planes. But as you pointed out, actually, most of the forces came in via glider after the initial landings. You know, that was one of my favorite parts of the research for that book is just, I mean, it was an education for me, uh, you know, because in Deadly Sky, I mean, I, I was mainly talking about the power pilots and the crews and, and not right. as much the glider pilots. And so it was a little bit of an eye opener for me uh, and a good one that to, to get into that world with the glider pilots. And when I did the research for September Hope, you know, it's been about, you know, 10, 11, 12 years ago, there were still a pretty decent number of glider pilots around. Um, and so I kind of got immersed in, in their world and got all these amazing wow. accounts, you know, and uh, had all this correspondence and, and stories that I didn't think had been told. And also, of course, I wanted to give 
the perspective of uh, you know the soldiers who, who went in on gliders too and how important their role was in market garden as well because you know i think all of us certainly tend to focus on the paratroopers and that's fine but i right. think that the glider side of it kind of rounds it out too when you're researching the gliders were you kind of as surprised as i was as a reader to find out that when it came to a co-pilot they just simply looked and said hey you can tie a good knot on your tie come up here let me train you <laughs> something I was, it was just so mind-blowing. You always think, you know, these minutely planned military train, operations train, and train. every provision and contingency, and then it's like, oh, wait, grab this guy, and he'll be the co-pilot or whatever. But, I, you know, in a way, it didn't surprise me because I'd, I'd studied enough combat history by then to know just what a shoestring it often is. Um, but one of the things that really stood out to me with the glider pilots um, as aviators, of course, they had a great deal of pride, as they should, but they felt like um, they felt like mavericks, you know, they felt like outcasts who had been underestimated. I understand why, but it was such a stark contrast to me with the, the way the British are going to train and use their glider pilots versus the Americans. The British, you know, are going to turn these guys into infantrymen once they're on the ground because they can't, they got a premium on manpower. They can't just squander guys. They, on the American side, you have this kind of uh, sort of administrative competition between the Army Air Forces and then, you know, the ground forces. And the Army Air Forces, of course, think the glider pilots are theirs, and so they're really only trained for that. And once they're on the ground, they're kind of these wayward souls wandering around doing some things that are productive, other things that aren't. And uh, and I, I found this uh, this letter by General Gavin, the, the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division, sort of really in-depth assessing the glider pilots and, and how they ought to be dealt with in the future. And, and his sort of main, the main gist of his message was, once these guys are on the ground, they're, they're more troubled than they're worth, you know? And I, I thought that was just so hilarious because he was talking about how they were sort of making trouble, not really always premeditated, but just by being in the way, you know, sort of. And I, right. I thought that was a very American thing in the sense of being able to kind of squander this manpower uh, but also having trained it so proficiently yes. and then the co-pilots as these, you know, sort of shoestring guys doing the best they can. And that was pretty darn good, mm -hmm. actually, considering right. what was going on. I, I just think it's amazing. And kind of to what you're saying about the pilots, especially when it comes to Operation Market Garden, your logistics are already on a shoestring. Now you have these guys. Now you got to find ways to get them back. <clears throat> oh, now we need jeeps <clears throat> or a troop carrier that's already being occupied to do something else. We have to round these guys up. Technically, it's our job is to get them back. It's like that's just one more thing to have to worry about. It really was. It was so chaotic too. Yeah, and a lot of them are cut off. A lot of them don't want to go back. Um, they want they, their glory. they like just exploring what's going on on the ground <laughs> and, and you know finding food and uh, laying low or some alcohol or whatever. And some of them want to fight. Some yep. want to fight with the infantry. Um, you know, so but even those and it's the majority really who do want to get back. It's a lot easier said than done because of the chaos of the operation, too. One more thing right. I would just want to cover on this book, and then I'll let Henry talk about some of the uh, books he just read. Uh, for those of you listening, your casual observer, maybe you're just getting into history, you're probably overwhelmingly familiar with Band of Brothers. There's an episode in Band of Brothers called The Island, and that's the one where Webster and mm -hmm. Tom Hanks' son comes, and they want to go take a shower. And Malarkey says, how long has it been since you've had a shower, Webster? You get into that island, quote-unquote, island campaign, that part of Market Garden, in great in-depth in here. And you talk about the living conditions, the fact that a lot of these guys have a shower once in a month and a half, two months, and how during the daytime they can't come out of their holes for fear of being hit hit with artillery and things like that. And so for those of you listening, if you're familiar with that episode of Band of Brothers and you really want to get some in-depth of what those living conditions are like, that is covered in great detail in September Hope. <clears throat> Yeah, what I did is I, I split the book up into two parts, uh, one called The Leap, which is all about the airborne operation and, and that sort of what I call September Hope, that week-long operation in which they hope to get across uh, the, the, you know, the, the Rhine bridges at Arnhem and go into northern Germany and all that, and obviously, you know, that fails. But what we, um, what I think what we sometimes tend to overlook is what happens for the next almost two months uh, as, as you know, these units are basically in place in static warfare for the most part, and uh, they're suffering the same amount of casualties. So, the, you know, the, it's interesting because the casualty rates in the U two U.S. Airborne Divisions are almost exactly equal from that first one-week phase, what I called the leap, and then the second part of the book is called the fall, uh, which is sort of a double entendre in the sense that, you know, you, you've fallen away from this mission um, that, that failed, and, you know, it's the fall. And they are, you know, these two U.S. Airborne divisions are not designed for that kind of static frontline infantry 
duty, and yet they have to be pressed into that service to hold the line. And it's some pretty lousy conditions. You know, they're living in foxholes, many of them. And as, as you mentioned, Don, it's like, uh, you know, a lot of them couldn't get out of their holes. They certainly couldn't bathe. Uh, there's small unit actions going on and off. And they're just getting melting away with casualties and, and the weather's getting worse. And it's uh, it's a very demoralizing circumstance. And I think it's well portrayed in that episode of Band and Brothers, the conditions, uh, you know, of course, you know, the Easy Company was a big part of that fight on the island. And it was called the island because it's low ground surrounded by all these, you know, all this water. And it's, you know, there's this this sort of levee type berm, you know, that there that is their world. And it's interesting because you, you go to, to that area today uh, around Apoisden, places like that. I mean, it's really the terrain is more or less the same. So you really do get a sense of this kind of confining environment of, of low ground and a kind of a watery place to be. And you can imagine in the fall uh, how mm-hmm. raw that would be and how moist. Uh, so this is not what a paratrooper signed up for. Well, you know, it was it was really interesting reading Babe Heffron and, and Bill Garnier's book. They talk about, obviously, everywhere that they were from the night they dropped in all the way through the end of the campaign. And they, they talk about Holland. I mean, the people... Mm-hmm. welcome them back every year it was like such a feeling of warmth and involvement with the people who were there and like the people would have pictures of them that they had, that their ancestors had taken of the guys you know during world war ii mm-hmm. and i mean <clears throat> it just blew garnier away i mean far and away eclipsed you know bastone or any of the other areas and well, it's it's a microcosm for the american experience in holland that fall um, there is there is seldom an American soldier who who would have served in that campaign, and also you know in the Skelt among the 104th Infantry Division, that would have a crossword to say about the Dutch uh, right there. I mean, of course, I think there was a friendship between the two nations before this, but I, I think there was a very very strong bond after that, especially in that area. That Market Garden corridor is a very special place, and I have to confess to being very biased because I I have felt the same thing. I love it there. Um, you know, we, we ride on the coattails of these guys who really did fighting. All, you know, all we did was get born, you know, yeah. as Americans, but yet we're treated like kings practically when we're there. And, you know, who wouldn't like that? So I think that I think a lot of the American soldiers at the time felt there were a lot of cultural similarities. They could relate to the Dutch. Uh, the Dutch were very excited about their liberation, they hoped. Sure. And instead, it turns in, you know, their homes turn into a battleground that fall. And it was, it was a very difficult winter for the Dutch, um, you know, on the front lines near near this fighting, but also, of course, more significantly for those who were still in German-occupied territory in what was called the Hunger Winter, in which about 10,000 Dutch died. Uh, mm-hmm. So I tried to, in, in September Hope, I tried to give that flavor of the local side of this too, and, and how the locals viewed the Americans and vice versa, and how you see that kind of bond begin. I really think it's a just a really compelling story. One of the things you pointed out too, you're talking about using the airborne for static positions, and I don't think anybody really ever thinks about it, and you so eloquently pointed it out, I think through a first-hand account from someone's diary entry or complaint. Um, airborne troopers, as you said, getting casualty rates at the same as an infantry soldier when so much more time, energy and effort goes into training these guys, they can't get replacements as quick as an infantry troop infantry division can because of the amount of time it takes to train them in all their special operations. And that's why they're really not meant for static defensive positions. They're hit and move and move on. Yeah. It's the profound irony of the whole thing. I mean, you know, these, these airborne units have been created, you know, for the, these kind of quick dash operations, which we anticipated we have, and we did from Sicily onward. And yet every time the, the airborne units were used for that, that mission, they're not really designed for. You saw it in Normandy. Uh, you saw it in, in Holland. And of course, obviously famously in the battle of the bulge when they're both fed in. And I think it's remarkable yeah. how well they do in the Battle of the Bulge when you consider they just, they've been in their rest area for all of a week, maybe, or two weeks, whatever it was, not very long. Um, you know, and, and then they're just thrown into the mix uh, near Verbamont uh, in, in the in St. Vith, in the case of the 82nd Airborne Division, obviously Bastogne for the 101st. And so, you know, it, you see them used for these missions they were never designed for, and then that was going to continue after the Bulge, too. Um, you know, in which you, you basically see them go into to Germany alongside the rest of the army. 
Um, so it had to be a bit frustrating for a paratrooper because if there's one thing you know you would hope for when you're trained as a paratrooper is that, yes, you're going to be in dangerous missions, but it's not even not going to last that long yeah. because they're supposed to relieve you when you're behind enemy lines right. and it didn't always happen. I think that goes back to what you said earlier, and I really appreciated the uh... – what was it, a minutely planned military operations, because <laughs> as a former soldier myself being downrange, you know, I know firsthand uh, everything can be perfectly planned. And then whoop, are they shooting at us? OK, let's go. <laughs> you know, it goes out the window every time, uh, you know, um, but I, I really find it fascinating. Um, kind, kind of going back to your to your writing style a little bit. I wanted to kind of point out from from a reenactor standpoint, you know, I've I've learned that, and I think a lot of reenactors are the same way, that you really kind of get into uh, whatever you're trying to portray by better getting into what would be surrounding the person there, not necessarily knowing everything about the battle, because let's face it, anybody who fought at Bastogne had no idea from a tactical standpoint, you know, they couldn't have drawn stuff out on a map, maybe you know, some of the higher end NCOs and officers that, you know, kind of really had a grasp prior to going there. But your general issue, you know, G.I. Joe going in there with M1 Garand, he didn't know where the heck he was at most of the time. He was just trying to stay alive. And and I find that out, you know, even myself firsthand. I, people told me about the stuff, the operations I was a part of in Baghdad. I know. I mean, yeah, sure. I guess that's what we were doing, you know. But so it, I, I never really thought of that from your perspective as an author to really, you know, really engross yourself in that. And again, I think from a reenactor, it's the same way. What was entertainment like? You know, what you, you start listening to the music. Um, you know, you start learning about the actors and actresses. Um, you get into what brand of cigarettes and you know so on and so on to really kind of delve in to what it would have been like uh, uh, back then. So that's really interesting. And it obviously just uh, is apparent in every page that, that you have penned because it, like that, like Don said, it, it's like you're there and it's, uh, it, it's very, it's a very obvious style that you have and it's, it's very, very appreciated. Yeah. To me, that's, what's compelling is, you know, if somehow you can feel like you're there as much as you ever can reading a book, um, that somehow this wakes up for you and you, you feel like you're, you're sort of part of this or immersed in it. Or, and I think the way to do that is to just to have these everyday perspectives of the people who are part of it and the, and the emotions, I think, that they're, they're expressing. Because I think that's what we can all relate to. You know, even if, if, you know what I mean? Even if, even if not all of us are, are cold in a foxhole or something like that or we're living comfortable lives, we can certainly relate to fear and uh, right. and, uh, and hunger or envy or you know uh, you know apprehension you know whatever it would be anger you know I mean all these things that uh, a lot of these soldiers experience and so that's what I try to convey is how they were viewing things at the time uh, yeah absolutely and even just thinking uh, in, in any in any sense uh, sometimes uh, a song will take somebody back or, or a certain aroma like oh man that's like grandma's cookies around Christmas time you know <laughs> so it's the same thing you know it's the same thing for those guys I'm sure that there were certain things there was a certain sound not necessarily tree bursts you know and you know but there were certain things that took them back and that was all part of their experience all part of uh, you know what they what they did over there so I just that's really interesting. That's just a really neat perspective. Yeah, and I think yeah, for absolutely. I think for people getting into history and World War II, a lot of people think before they really dive into books that all oh, these books are just going to be logistics, dates, history. Mm. But when you read authors like you and, and the style of writing you do, me personally, I'm all about the first person accounts, even if it's you know r written through a third person view. To me, it's so much more. Um, relatable and intriguing if I can think, wow, this with the writing style that you have, it really brings home the, wow, this really happened to real people, not, okay, on this date, this happened, we moved a bunch of people here, and this happened. Yep. To me, I'm really but into John the first John does a really good account. job of melding that first person account with the larger context, so you're understanding, mm -hmm. you know, what's going on in an operation like Market Garden or D-Day at Normandy. Go ahead, sir. Yeah, I mean, it's like anything. You're, um, you know, there's always some objective. There's always some purpose that people are working toward, I guess. And, and I guess as we go higher up the chain, the purpose tends to be mission fulfillment and, 
carrying out their plan or whatever. As we go lower down the chain, the, the, the purpose seems to be um, survival, <laughs> uh, comfort, warmth, uh, getting food or you know whatever it is. But the, we can all relate to that at a very human level. And that's, I guess, really what interests me as an historian is people. And 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 um, and and as an American historian in particular, what interests me is Americans and what makes us tick and who we are and what what these folks were like and whether we can relate to some aspects or not, what we can learn from that. Uh, and that's you know, like we we're talking about with the logistics and the cold hard data and all that kind of stuff. I mean that that's where you know as a kid it was a little frustrating for me because it seemed like a lot of books were written from that angle and and it's just a, the the human beings seem to be lost somehow and. And so it occurred to me, it was like, well, the human story should be in there, but we can also understand the larger logistical story when we look at human beings through that lens. And so if we know that, you know, the, the market garden takes X number of hundreds of thousands of tons of supplies, it's like, okay, yeah, that's that's interesting to know. But what does that mean then? You know, what what did that mean for those who had to carry them in? Or, you know, was it enough? Or what was the context of all that? You know, was it planned well? Uh, how did it play out? What were the problems? You know, and so now you really start to unravel the larger story. And I think then it gets interesting. Yeah, that's like I said, that's something we talked about a few times on this podcast is, you know, Don likes to a lot of the memoirs, the first person stuff. And I tended to gravitate more towards some of the other. I, I want to know the battle. You know, I want to learn about the battle, you know, from, from the, the 20,000 foot level. And then I'll go into the memoir stuff because you typically you're not going to learn anything from the battle in a memoir, you know, a lot and vice versa. You're not really going to learn about the human experience from the tactical standpoint. Uh, so and, and yeah, you you blend that perfectly. You make it to where, uh, you know, you can understand the human experience and understand you can also get a concept of from the tactical level as if you're looking at a map with a bunch of red and blue arrows, you know, and that's key to understanding it. So it yeah. Is key to understand. Yeah. And I appreciate it. It, uh, I mean, to me, it's again, wrapped up in that larger purpose of why are they there? And, and, you know, what does that mean then for the average guy? Um, you know, or the person who has to fight that battle, the person who has to plan it, the person who has to command it, you know, these are all the various things that kind of come into play. And, and what's, what I've learned over the years, and I, I don't think I really knew this as well, you know, 20 some odd years ago, is that, you know, the generals are human too, in the sense that we can see their, we can see human stories through them too. It's just they're, they're preoccupied with different things. And, and so we, I think a lot of, you know, we can relate to that too, of having to make difficult decisions and, and, uh, and having to, to, to make, uh, being in a leadership quandary, where to place yourself on the battlefield, for instance, you know, um, and why and and how to deal with people and you know so I, I think all of that could becomes very very relatable we talked a little bit earlier about your research process did you do you find it's a little bit more taxing or do you have to take a different strategy when you go from like a european theater operations book to a pacific theater operations book such as you know fire and fortitude or islands inferno um maybe because there's less coverage or things like that, do you kind of have to change your, your game plan up a little bit? Um, a little bit, but, I, you know, one of the things that attracts me to any topic is is if there's a rich amount of source material that really allows us to delve into it. If there isn't, you know, I mean, history follows where the sources are. I mean, unfortunately, right. if there isn't much, it's tough to tell that story. You can't just make it up. Uh, and if you look at the source material, too, you have to kind of parse it out um, as to, you know, so like the first hand accounts, what is this person in a position really to tell us about and what are they not? Um, so if we're talking about, uh, you know, a guy in the middle of a battle of Saipan uh, as a private soldier or rifleman, you can certainly tell us this perspective of what it means to be fighting to the death against the Japanese or dealing with the conditions or, or whatever else is going on, what it's like to eat the sea rations or whatever. I don't know that he can tell us a lot about the conflict between the two generals Smith. Uh, or what Nimitz is doing at that point, or, or you know how to, how war production factors into it. And, and sometimes I've noticed, especially as the years go on, as veterans read more and more of this kind of stuff, they they start to kind of pontificate on that too, and that, then that becomes a little more problematic. So you, you respectfully kind of parse out, uh, you know. But on the other hand, too, if we're looking at um, say a, a, an S four supply officer logistical report. 
uh, that person can tell us about their challenges and what was going on that month for their unit, um, you know, but they, they don't necessarily, they can't tell you much about what it was to be so fearful as a rifleman at the front. Um, so one of the reasons I approached the, the Pacific series is I knew there was just a ton of material out there and a lot of which just hadn't been used the way, the way it could or should. And mm -hmm. I felt that there, if there was any real gap in, uh, you know, in our understanding of the U.S. and World War II, it was in the Army story. Uh, you know, I mean, this is, this is really a huge army that fights in the Pacific. This is 1.8 million American ground soldiers, third largest army we've ever sent overseas to fight a war. Um, and yet it's kind of anonymous. And, and so that very much excited me. To kind of delve into that because I, I knew there would be an embarrassment of of source riches, and that that's usually a good thing. Is you know as much as I'm as I love reading about the ETO, obviously um, the Pacific is near and dear to my heart. But you know, like you were talking about a lot of these issues on Paul Woodedge's show, and it got me to thinking. You know, and totally respectfully, I mean, sure the Marines garner a huge amount of of press; they always have. But really, when you look at the sheer scope and numbers of Army operations, you know, it really, there's really not much of a comparison in just terms of sheer weight of numbers. So yep. from that standpoint, I mean, I'm really looking forward to diving into your Army series. But, I mean, I have to say, I mean, you really jump between ETO and PTO, it seems, with, with complete ease. Well, I hope to. I, mean, I appreciate that. I don't know if it felt that way as I was doing it, but uh, I appreciate that it looked like that. I mean, I, it, you know, I'd been building up toward this for a while. And one of the things that kind of led me toward it was was that book, Grunts, that I mentioned, uh, right. in which I looked at two Pacific theater battles in a great deal of depth. One was the Battle of Guam, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, I felt that the, the Americans fought that battle very well and the Japanese not so well because they had kind of given into their own cultural vanity and tendency, you know, through bonsai charges and all that, that were really very counterproductive. But we also saw there, too, how the Marines and the Army worked very well together um, mm. at, at Guam. Peleliu, the opposite, in the sense of, of um, uh, General Ruperitus not wanting the Army there. And, and because right. of that, I think a lot of really good Marines suffered for that and, right. and suffered and died. And, and of course, Peleliu was a was a very tough battle in which the Japanese had figured out the inland defense, and the Americans decide we got to take every cave and nook and cranny, and and so, you know, that I I found those two battles very interesting from that standpoint as that kind of comparison, and then I realized there was of course a much larger scope to the story, and so what what I really hope, um, Andrew especially, is that as people read Fire and Fortitude and Island Infernos then in a way they develop an even greater respect for the Marine Corps in the sense that there's so few Marines really involved relative to the number of soldiers. Sure. Um, yeah, that's true. And it's, it just, you know, it just, it's incredible. Um, the level of valor and the impact that the Marine Corps has. And one things that, one of the things that I, that I will argue uh, probably in perpetuity is that Marines and soldiers in the Pacific tended to fight very well together. And they tended to have a tremendous bond when they interacted with one another. Uh, they had respect at the, at the basic rifleman level, typically. And where there were problems, it was usually not doctrinal problems, as, as I think sometimes we tend to think. It was usually command problems. Um, and mm -hmm. what I mean by that is, is uh, General Holland Smith on, on Saipan is just a guy who doesn't want the Army there. And, and he's, <laughs> he doesn't want a part of the team, and he's just not acting like a you, commander. And the same thing with Rivera's. It's the you feel like it's it's, it's just self-defeating. It's, do you it's feel very like frustrating me as an historian. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just, so like you talk about Smith and Julian Smith and Hall and Mad Smith. And, you know, I, I know things have been written about the 27th Division. <clears throat> and isn't it on Saipan when there's a lot of tension because General Smith doesn't think mm -hmm. they're pushing – hard enough and fast enough and so the marines are going too far forward in the 27th i mean do you do you feel like the 27th kind of got short shrifted there or do you think that's a legit assessment? i think the 27th definitely got short shrifted um and I, I think that the 27th generally fought very well uh and i think that most marines who fought alongside them would would agree with that mm -hmm. um the 27th had really at that point if we're talking like four or five days into the battle 27th right. had the toughest mission of, of um, you know, driving into the middle of the, the Japanese defenses on the highest ground. 
the the Marines were moving in the in the valleys on either side, kind of enveloping, um, and not as if it was an easy mission. It wasn't. Uh, but they, when the 27th took over uh, for the Marines who had been fighting in the middle, uh, the the the, uh, the Marine battalion commander whose unit had been taking the lead, he, he told the the Army commander, he said, "This is the toughest fight we've ever been in. You're inheriting one hell of a fight here." Uh, and so he was telling him straight out, and that's precisely what the army found too. So all the frontal attacks in the world, um, uh, valor and all that, wasn't going to do anything for you. It, it was going to take using the noggin, of uh, combined arms and incremental and all that kind of stuff. And I don't care whether you're a marine or a soldier; there's physics govern you, uh, you know, and right. ballistics and all that. And so um, I think that both marines and soldiers were fighting pretty similarly as someone who studied a lot of like combat combat history of world war ii i didn't find that much difference in how they actually fought at saipan the difference is holland smith is, is just a, a, a has such a marine-centric view of the world and, and kind of just mm -hmm. hates the other services not just the army but the navy um that he that he doesn't really think of himself as the commander of all these divisions that are his troops he thinks of my marines and then the 27th division and that's a right. big problem. And, and so he conflicts with Ralph Smith, the 27th Division commander. It's really quite sad because uh, Ralph Smith was a fine commander, um, but Holland Smith is just not troubling himself to, to go to the front, actually, and, um, you know, see what's going on for himself. And, and so he doesn't, I'm afraid he doesn't emerge as a very sympathetic figure in Island Infernos mm -hmm. because I, I, I can't help but be frustrated and maybe a little angry that I think that he's willing to kind of spend lives for his own ignorance. And I'm talking Marine lives too, mm -hmm. um, and, and soldier lives. And, and the other thing that, that kind of irks me about him a little bit, he liked to present himself as this sort of big, rough, tough, gruff Marine, and the soldiers weren't up to his toughness or whatever. Well, you know, Holland Smith had never been through boot camp. Uh, he did not go to the Naval Academy. Uh, he basically got commissioned without going to OCS. Um, he basically had a Marine commission handed to him, and he was a good Marine. And he was a good amphibious operational thinker, but he had hardly seen a lick of combat. And he tried to present himself as this big, tough combat guy who the soldiers didn't measure up or something. Well, you know, all his Marines have been through boot camp or the Naval Academy or OCS, and that was pretty rough, you know. And, and Holland Smith hadn't earned that kind of persona, in my view. And he certainly hadn't faced anywhere near as much combat as Ralph Smith. Uh, who had fought in World War I uh, and, and was had such strong ties to France that his wife was French. And right. Ralph Smith, on the very day that Holland Smith fires him, Ralph Smith spent the day at the front lines and almost got killed multiple times. You know, so it, it struck me as sort of sad and unjust that, that Ralph Smith was impugned by a man who, who really didn't even go to the front lines throughout much of any of the battle and yet was willing mm -hmm. to, to kind of call out the, the army soldiers as cowards. And uh, I, I just, that rubs me the wrong way. Do you think his um, persona, if you will, is kind of a little bit of overcompensation for that lack of training and um, experience? I definitely think it was, yes. Uh, and I think it's so regrettable because I think if he'd, if he'd had a bit more modesty about it or not defensiveness or whatever, uh, he was a smart man. And he understood a great deal, uh, probably more than almost any other American general, about amphibious warfare. Uh, but he and I'm not saying he's a coward. I'm not I'm trying to not portray that at all. But I am saying he didn't have whatever it took to go to the front lines and check on the situation for himself. He just gave into his own predispositions and biases. And yes, yeah, so I think there was a bit of overcompensation there. He loved to have that marine identity and persona. Who wouldn't? Um, and 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 yet he didn't. He didn't really earn it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, and I, you know, I just don't think that, I don't think he, he served his Marines well in that regard. And I don't, certainly don't think he served the soldiers well. So you see this direct contrast between uh, Holland Smith and uh, Major General Roy Geiger, uh, who's in command at Guam. And Geiger, by contrast, who of course is a Marine general uh, and a remarkable aviator, yes. he, he wants, he, he views everybody in his amphibious corps as being under his command, whether Marines or soldiers, he doesn't care. And that's what matters to him. And so you see a much smoother uh, command structure and a, and a much smoother battle fought there. Uh, granted, the Japanese garrison wasn't quite as potent, but it still was pretty, pretty, um, you know, pretty formidable. Um, you know, and then later on at Peleliu, uh, Rupert, uh, he has to step in, Geiger does, to basically right. 
<laughs> tell Reparis, you're going to work with the army. And if there's only, if there's one mistake Geiger makes, it's that he was, he waited two or three days, you know, too long to, to make that happen. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people died in the meantime. I know that, and, and you know, I try to <clears throat> minimize how much I talk about my father, but I can't, in this case, I have to refer to it directly to what you said, John. I just did a reread of my dad's book and I'm, I'm researching some of his papers for a project. And I read some other things that he wrote that nobody's ever seen. And the things he says about the army, it's heartwarming. I mean, to, to what you said right there. I mean, he said, sure, there was inter-service rivalry, but you better bet your ass. We were glad to see the doggies because we were, we'd had all we could take. I mean, we saw those guys and he talks about how he looked at them and, nodded and they nodded back he said i felt mutual respect and admiration that that is really interesting to hear henry i mean that as you know obviously <laughs> i've been a, an incredible admirer of your father for a long period of time and his memoir was seminal for me absolutely seminal as for of course get in line you know tens of thousands of others sure. it's, it's the most amazing war memoir i think ever written and it had a great effect and impact on me so for him to say that, I think, you know, is much more meaningful than anything I could say. Um, you know, when you're looking at his 5th Marine Regiment, how hard they're fighting right. uh, around the Umbrogal by the time the 81st Division gets there. And, you know, and, and the 1st Marines had been destroyed for the most part. Uh, the 5th mm -hmm. Marines weren't too far from that. Right. That was, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and most, I did a lot of research um of course, on Marine first-hand accounts for, for grunts and also for, for uh, Island Infernos. And I, I never saw anybody uh, this side of Reparatus who didn't want the Army there. I mean, who wouldn't want the help? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the 1st Marine Tank Battalion was pulled off of Peleliu. Was it after one week or two? I think it's, I think it's at least one, yeah. Because the, when they push up into the Horseshoe, it's 710th Tank Battalion. That's, that's who that's who three files working with. And again, I I read where, you know, the there was a lot of respect, a lot of really good, a lot of really good teamwork. Yeah, and that's a pattern you see throughout the war. You, a lot of times you have marine units working with army tank battalions uh at other islands too, including Saipan. And right. and they generally are working very well together. And, and of course, there's all sorts of jostling, and there's all sorts of little snide oh, remarks. Yeah. And, and the Marines tend to be younger. That's one thing, you know. Especially uh, the, the Marines are younger generally than a lot of the, the Army combat units. So I think there's a little difference in perspective there too. The Marines certainly more aggressive in some ways, but at the same time, combat troops are combat troops, you know. And so, right. um, one of the things I say about Reparatus in Peleliu is that he's the only high-level commander I can think of who actually didn't want reinforcements. And, I, you right. know, that, when you think about that or wrap your mind around it, you're like, what in the world is this guy thinking? And, and I think it comes down to that kind of, uh, that, that sort of uh, kind of institutional chauvinism in a way. And, you know, and, and part of it was because the Marine Corps was smallest of the services. It tended to be under assault budget-wise and, and constantly had to, to stand up for itself. And, and I think it's very understandable from that perspective, but from the command perspective, it's really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. For sure. I'm just marveling at, at this dialogue right now because it's obviously as a, as a soldier, I've, I've, I've had a, I've always had to kind of defend what the army did, you know, in, in the Pacific, because like you say, I mean, you know, the, the, the Marines kind of had the PR in their back pocket, it seems like for the entire campaign. And, you know, to just, I'm, I'm loving that. <laughs> I mean, I, I never, sure. My dad, was he opinionated as a Marine? Of course he was. Of course. I grew up hearing it, but I mean, I was asked on a recent, podcast henry did your dad ever talk about his opinion of the general we were just referring to and i said yeah he did and i didn't say another word mm -hmm. and i didn't want to say another word because i just didn't want to throw things out there that would just be counterproductive and and, and plus general reporters granddaughter is a friend of mine on facebook okay so I, he was a man who served his country with distinction. I don't want mm -hmm. him to smirch that. But if you're asking me, did Sledgehammer express strong opinions? 
his opinions were the same as all his other buddies who needed reinforcements. Absolutely. They needed it. And they, and they, and they knew it. I mean, they understood what was going on. They're in the middle of this mess. They're losing their buddies. Sure. And it, you know, and Rupertus, you know, as with anybody in, in that I write about, and especially in this series, I tried to be empathetic or sympathetic to them and fair to them. Rupertus, you know, had had suffered a terrible tragedy earlier yes. in his life of having, I think, two of his kids and his wife die of, of yes. scarlet fever, I think it was, in China. Right. I mean, I don't know that he was ever the same after that. And he, he was certainly dedicated. He wrote the Rifleman's Creed. He wrote the Rifleman's Creed. He right. uh, he command he was second in command to, to uh, uh, you know in uh, in Guadalcanal and and it performed very well but he just was not a division commander and the other thing too, uh, Repertus died in 1945 of a heart condition and so I kind of have always wondered if maybe that was a factor too um, that that maybe he just wasn't in very good health and then maybe that affected him as well I don't know it's just speculation I've, I've always felt like it did. Just, just my personal opinion from mm-hmm. talking to my dad and, and reading other things that everything I get my hands on up, I, I felt like it did. I think Peleliu just taxed him in so many ways, as, as it did, you know, everybody. Um, so for sure, and he was older <laughs> than yep. most everybody there, and that, that could not have been easy. Plus, he had a broken ankle, of course, too. That's right. Yeah, that'd be rough, and that restricted his mobility, and I think restricted his his uh, his vision in the sense of knowing what was going on. You know, because ordinarily, I think he probably would have been at the front. You know, getting a little better feel for things. Right. You know, so it was a bit a bit unfortunate in that regard too. Earlier, you were talking about the. I don't want to say lack of, but the smaller unit of Marines on the islands comparative to the army. And when you said that, I had a quick thought in my mind. I was like, oh, it's almost like they're special forces. Then I had an even quicker thought, oh, that makes sense of why they felt that they really didn't need the Marine Raiders because the Marines were basically could do the same type of thing. And the Marine infantry brass was getting upset that the Marine Raiders are taking their best guys and putting them in these Raider units. So let's just get rid of the Raider unit, stop with the training, bring them back into the regular Corps. And let us just do the same job. And it makes perfect sense now once you made that comparison with the fewer Marines, comparatively speaking, to the Army that was out there doing that type of work. Yeah, and there's always this tension in the Marine Corps. Should we have, you know, special operations troops or not? Aren't all Marines, you know, in that vein anyway? And, and of course, no Marine commander wants to lose his best people to a Raider unit Mm -hmm. and all that. So, yeah, you definitely see that tension play out in World War II. Um, it's generally won by the conventionalist for the most part, especially by 1944 and 45 when the biggest battles are fought. Um, mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about the, the Marine units is they're pretty much designed to be, you know, amphibious light infantry. And, and their their companies are overstrength by Army standards. Most go into the invasions with about, I think, 235, something like that, on a rifle company. Right. Whereas an Army company is about 183, you know, 183 or something like that. Um, but they also, just like the, the paratroopers in Europe, end up in sustained fights like Peleliu, like Okinawa, Iwo Jima. I mean, the list goes on and on. And the casualty rates are just staggering. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's just beyond belief. Uh, and so when you end up, when, you know, from my sort of 20,000 foot viewpoint, especially looking through an army lens, the, the, the six Marine divisions are part of this larger American ground complement. Uh, mm-hmm. You add 21 army divisions, plus really probably three or four divisions worth of combat manpower with regimental combat teams and engineer special brigades, tank battalions and all that, probably at least that. And you're looking at 30 plus, you know, very, very powerful ground combat units. Uh, and so the Marines are just sort of one part of that mix. And maybe that's what I'm hoping to to kind of, you know, revise maybe the, the viewpoint a little bit. I think there's a tendency... And we look back on the Pacific War to say, okay, well, it was, uh, I guess it was Guadalcanal, then it was Tarawa, uh, then it was Saipan, and then it was Iwo and Okinawa. And it's like, well, no, actually the Philippines was the, the, the nexus of the American War in the Pacific. Uh, now, are you, are you, huge campaigns. Are you going to do a study on Manila and, and, and the Philipp- Army mm-hmm. in the Philippines? Is that in the works? Yeah, well, that, the in the third volume, we'll see that play out. Um, okay, so, excellent. Yeah, so the scope of Island Infernos is just 1944. So the right. book ends with the Battle of Leyte, which, by the way, is 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 a huge battle. Um, right. Leyte, the, the American 
complement at, at Leyte in terms of ground combat divisions and naval strength is larger than the American contribution to the Normandy invasion, believe it or not. Wow. It's, I mean, it's staggering to step back and think of that. And of course, this is all Army, you know, in terms of the ground forces, except for mm -hmm. um, there are there are some Marine aviation units that go in and fight as part of the Battle of Leyte, but not, you know, in ground combat. So right. Island Infernos ends with that. And then uh, the next volume, the third and last volume, covers 1945. And, and Henry, absolutely, Manila is a huge part of that. Mm -hmm. It's an enormous battle. It's so costly and it's incredibly tragic, and it it, it is so complex and multi layered that I, that I I take it on a great deal of depth. I'm I'm glad to hear that because I, actually on Paul's show I saw James Scott talking about Rampage, mm -hmm. and I, I, I'm intrigued Army operations 1945 because you know Guadalcanal and obviously Peleliu for me. I mean I've I've read so much about that. But you get into 1945, except for Okinawa, I'm I'm sadly ignorant, of, for example, about mm -hmm. the Philippines. Me too. I've read a little bit about the marine aviation stuff there, but I, I I was intrigued by Rampage, and I thought I wanted to read it. And then, you know, he and Paul started talking about how the civilian population suffered under Japanese atrocities and barbarity. And I, I'm just thinking, man, I don't know if I can do that. It, it is not going to be pleasant reading. Um, it, it is going to be rough reading. I, Henry, I, I would venture to say it's going to be as rough a reading as reading your father's Okinawa account because the tragedy on so many Probably levels in the civilian component may be worse in the sense it's a big yeah. metropolitan area, I guess, but it, it, but similar in the sense of just the, the horrific tragedy and scope and scale of this. So, by the way, Rampage is an incredible book. I highly recommend that book, Derek James is an incredible writer and uh, he's done a remarkable research job. That is the best single book on the Battle of Manila and especially from the civilian point of view of what happens mm -hmm. there. Um, you know, my account is going to happen in this larger context, of course, of the Army story in 1945, but the right. Army's campaign in the Philippines, which is, of course, again, just enormous. MacArthur's command by then, by Leyte, um, is the second largest American theater on the globe behind only Eisenhower in Europe. Um, you know, he's got, MacArthur's got 14 plus divisions going at this stage. And, you know, so, and it's going to grow. And I mean, and of course it was ultimately culminating toward the possible invasion of Japan. So you can imagine how large that was going to be of, of, you know, eventually three field armies, six, eighth and 10th. Um, you know, so yeah, what's happening in the, in the Philippines is 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 fascinating to study from a uh, kind of guerrilla war level, but also conventional operations, amphibious, aviation, political um, conditions, human discourse. You know, like when the, the army goes into Manila, um, you know, and into the Philippines as a whole. Now all of a sudden we have venereal disease problems again, whereas right. we didn't. You know, we of course didn't at Peleliu, you know, I mean, that's <laughs> bad as it was, we didn't have to worry about that, you know, so you're starting to see the, the kind of nature of the war change and, and it, so, and engineering too, engineering and logistics mm -hmm. is such a huge part of that. But what's really cool to study is all the different islands that they're going to invade, especially as 1945 unfolds. And mm -hmm. uh, you see, for instance, Lieutenant General Robert Eichelberger, whom I would argue is probably the best American ground commander who most of us have never heard of in the war. Now, he had done he, heavy he duty these, in New Guinea, correct? Oh, my gosh, yeah. The, the Battle of Buna in 1942 is just remarkable. Right. He wins the first American ground victory in World War II, and yet we, mm -hmm. we kind of tend to forget that. And uh, so by three years later, there he is in the Philippines in, in practically invading an island every other day. He has 35 amphibious wow. invasions in a matter of a couple of months, you know, so uh, as an army commander, as the eighth army commander. So you kind of see that unfold too. But the, the you know, the problem with it, with the Philippines story in 44, 45, it's kind of similar to the European theater in the sense that, you know, if you really wanted to examine every division's fight and every small unit action, you'd be studying this forever. And so there's a tendency right. of repeating, and so the, 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 the challenge is in how to present this fairly without just sort of battering the reader with constant repeated small unit actions that are have a sameness about them, you know. So, mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I try and strike that balance. But it's, and I think, I think maybe that's why some historians have shied away 
just in the sense that they shied away from everything that's going on in the the French front in the fall of 1944. You know, you tend to parcel it out in small parts of it, like us with Market Garden or or maybe Hurricane Forest or something. You know, if you're taking on that whole big gulp, that's that's a lot to deal with. This right. may be an opinionated question, but as far as mainstream history goes, what do you think is the most overlooked campaign in the PTO uh, as far as mainstream history goes? Yeah, I mean, I really think it's the the second Philippines campaign in 44 and 45. This is, in my view, one of the most important campaigns fought in American history. Um, it's an enormous campaign in terms of the number of Americans involved, hundreds of thousands. Um, the, the combined arms operations of naval and ground power and the, the air power that's involved in this, the sophistication of it, the intel side of it, working with local guerrillas, which is, of course, vitally important. And the Philippines is, in my view, kind of the nexus of the, the American war against Japan. I mean, mm-hmm. what had happened in 41-42 with the Japanese, I won't even say taking over the archipelago, but ejecting the American armies and capturing, of course, many thousands of Americans and Filipinos uh, was a from profound tragedy and uh, and of course many americans wanted to avenge that and liberate the archipelago and and i really think this is sort of certainly from macarthur's viewpoint this is the capstone of the war um you know and of course you'd say well you ought to be good into japan you know that's where you really ought to go and that's a very good argument and obviously that's nimitz's argument and that's what you have these two prongs southwest pacific and central pacific and that's great um, but if we're looking at really what happens in the Philippines and the impact it has, I, I just think it's incredibly overlooked. Um, I know of no book at all that just covers that campaign, 44 and 45. I know pieces of it, a book on Leyte, mm-hmm. for instance, or a book on Manila or whatever, but all of it, no. And, I, and I, of course, I don't pretend that I covered it all, uh, but I hope that, that I, I gave you a pretty good flavor of it, of what the Army's doing there in 44, and Island Infernos, and then in the next book in 45. Now, when um, will that book come out? I don't know yet. Um, it's it's mostly written uh, because, believe it or not, it, it, originally this was going to be a two-volume series. And so mm-hmm. the second volume was going to be 44 and 45, but that would have ended up as like a 1,200-page book. You know, it would have just, <laughs> been at a massive doorstop, you know, so... <laughs> Um, so fortunately my editor and, um, and my publisher quite rightly said, you know, let's, let's split that up into two volumes. I said, great, you know, because I didn't want to just cut, you know, cut things that, that needed to be in there. So uh, 44 and 45 were the obvious sort of dividing points. Um, you know, cause I had organized the book that way anyway. So most of it is written, but I don't know when it'll be out. Probably, probably not for a couple of years, I think, but uh, that, that's just total speculation okay. of my Gives us something to look forward to. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. You had a question, Jeff? I'm, I'm really glad you uh, you mentioned what you did about about Leyte because I can tell you, it's. I was just trying to do the math. It was 20 years and one month ago that I was assigned to the First Cavalry Division, and you know, I I had known just a little bit from childhood. You know, First Cav, I think, in Vietnam. Uh, but you know, there's a slogan that it's still being used: First Team, <laughs> and it's not necessarily just because it's the First Cavalry Division, but it was uh, first unit Leyte, first in the Pyongyang, first, you know, so it, it has a strong legacy. And I was a little disappointed kind of growing up uh, more, I guess maybe most kids are geared more towards the ETO, you know, as a kid, bow the bolt kind of stuff, you know. Um, but I was very uh, interested and intrigued by the air war in the Pacific. I mean, there's nothing better than Hellcats taking off of another carrier in the middle of a beautiful <laughs> Pacific sunrise, right? Right. Um, but I'll, I'll admit, I, I remember looking back like, okay, what did my unit do in World War II? You know? And I was like, what? They were in the Pacific? Only Marines were in the Pacific. What the heck is this? <laughs> That's you exactly know? how I wrote these books. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it Boy, was really interesting. And, and I don't claim to know a whole lot about what the first cap did then, but I do, I do know it was very significant. And, and just that little bit of research, it really was like, wow. That's that's interesting. Um, so I'm I, I'm really glad I'm really glad you said that. Well, before before we uh, before we wrap up, I just wanted to say that I hope our listeners, you know, after they go to wtspworld2.com and buy a couple T-shirts, I really hope that they buy two of your books, one for themselves and one for a friend this Christmas. Because I mean, we could go we could go on and on. We've only covered what two or three of the books that you have been. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my gosh, uh, you know, we'd be we'd be up all night, I think. But um, <laughs> and more. <laughs> this has just been incredible for me as as just a, just a young story myself. I start my undergrad in history uh, in February uh, with aspirations to be a high school history teacher here, where I graduated. Um, I've done just about everything else. <laughs> I think now I'm going to finally settle down and and, and teach uh, teach American history. But uh, awesome. it's just it's just really been been a pleasure. You know, last year when I when we did that uh, that webinar together, I didn't really get to speak. It was not about me, of course. This was this was you. I was just hosting, and so I was really looking forward to tonight to just just being able to sit back with it and listen to, you know, your perspective on things. And, and, um, you know, just like Henry said, like four guys hanging around a campfire kind of thing. Absolutely. Talking about what we're doing. It's just been awesome. It's just been really yeah, great. Really has. And I just want to say before we finish up, Jeff, and I, you'll, you'll like this, I hope the first cavalry division is a major player in, uh, in the Pacific and in the, and in Island Infernos. And it will be in volume three too, because first cavalry division it gets in theater like by early 1944 and it's just like itching for action and they get the invasion of los negros which is also an overlooked february 1944 but was really important for accelerating the timetable war and then of course they invade leyte uh and are a big part of the invasion at tacloban and then through leyte and of course and you'll see in volume three they're the liberators of manila um and and every and the pow's in manila and so it's an amazing history and I, I mean, I, I have a lot on that unit. I think you're going to like that. Outstanding. Before we wrap it up, I want to throw you a quick curveball. Um, the U.S. Military History for Dummies. Did they reach out to you to write that <laughs> book? How did that come about? Hey, you know, a colleague of mine, uh, Kurt Peeler from uh, Florida State University, uh, I think had been thinking about writing it or something. And uh, I don't know, maybe he couldn't. And so he, uh, he put them in touch with me. The, them being the publisher, mm -hmm. uh, the John Wiley and Sons, and they they said, "Would you be interested in doing this?" And and I foolishly said yes. And I, the reason I say foolishly is I didn't know how much work it was going to be. Yeah, because you got to condense um, all that down to a short book. This entire military yeah, history is not Vietnam or Civil War. It's the entire history from the date it published to the start of it. Yeah. It's everything. And so, yeah, exactly. For someone as verbose as I am and who likes to get a deep dive into history, as I, it was, I won't say frustrating, but a little challenging in that regard. But the, the neat part, too, was all the little asides you could put in there, little factoids, the stories, and the top 10 lists and all that. I ended up really enjoying it. But uh, it was a different kind of writing. Um, I've almost thought about using it. In my, I teach a class called the American Military Experience. But I would never want my students to think that I'm calling them dummies, you know. So for that purpose, I've never really <laughs> gone down that road. I wonder if they've sat around and said, okay, it's 2021. Do we need to change the name of the franchise just a little bit to make it a little softer? I know. <laughs> I, I wonder the same. Yeah. Well, I've got a final question for you, John. What's your favorite film from about World War II? Favorite war movie? You know, I'll be the the uh, sort of cliche guy. I, I just love Saving Private Ryan. I think it's uh, an amazing film on so many levels. Now there are some things that are wrong, that are inaccurate, or whatever. And and there's, you know, I think there's a gratuitous swipe at Montgomery and all that. I mean, of course, I admit all that. That's that's fine. But I, I think certainly in terms of a, a kind of seminal portrayal of combat, of the combat soldiers' mentality, of leadership dilemmas. Um, mm -hmm. you know, the, the mission versus the man and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The, the flavor and feel of Normandy, you know, uh, unlike most people, some of my favorite scenes are the, the town fighting. Um, you know, like, like when they're supposedly in uh, Nouvelle La Plaine and there's like the, you know, sort of about a third of the way into the movie and it's where, um, the, the sniper, you know, shoots, uh, yeah. Vin Diesel and, and all Arlen. that. I, I just think that's so well done because of the, the rain and the, the masonry and the French involved. And then of course the, the climactic fighting too. And some of it's Hollywood where the, the, the planes come to save the day and all that too. But, but yet most of the characters die and that doesn't always happen in Hollywood movies. And I think that was a little more right. true to, to form. So I think it's, I think I, I really do after all these years still think it's brilliant on many levels. And I know it's, a bit of it. It's like saying the Beatles are your favorite band, I guess. But if they are, they are, right? So, yeah, yeah I really like that movie. Yeah, yeah. You bring up some good points, and I'll admit that I, I every time I watch it, uh, I get more scared at the end of the movie. And and uh, 
Ramel or wherever they're at that, that town. And maybe because I guess urban fighting is a little bit more up my alley, but you know, as opposed to beach landing, but I still, man, when, when those guys are, are running 30 cows and ammo everywhere, even before it starts, you hear the tigers and panzers screeching a couple blocks away. That's still, I mean, you hear those treads gr- grinding on the pavement. Yeah. yeah just, just to, vibration. Kind of, you just know it's point of no return. You know, I mean, I mean, as, as much as that beach invasion was just like God awful, I wouldn't want to be in a, in a two-story bombed out rock building with a 30 cal and a couple cans of ammo. I, I think that last scene, I, I'm with you, Jeff. To me, that was way better than that the beginning. You. Yeah, that gets you. I think John was just- amazing. And having to displace your machine gun. I mean, just something like that, which is so accurate to, to small unit actions in World War II, especially in Normandy. I will say I have yet to see Sticky Bomb in the Army Manual. I have not been able to find it in the chat. <laughs> it isn't in the manual, but it did exist in reality, in, you know, in terms of real small unit. And so did the, believe it or not, so did the uh, arming the 60 millimeter mortar rounds. Because I knew a lot of oh, people at the right. time who said, oh, that's BS, that's Hollywood. Actually, oh. I found a number of accounts where people did that. Yeah. Right. Now, throwing them 75 yards, maybe not. But <laughs> Probably not that far. You'd have to be, you know... Um, uh, who would say, you know, like pretty much any major league pitcher now who can throw about 105, I guess. You right. have to be that, you know. Well, and as right. we've also pointed out on this podcast, go ahead and try to pull the pin out of grenade with your teeth. See how many teeth you spit out along yeah. with that pin. <laughs> Not many. <laughs> right. You spit more teeth than you will pins. It's John C. McManus. Please head over to johncmcmanus.com. And as Jeff said, head over to wtspworldwar2.com. Please sign up for Patreon. It helps goes a long way and buy some T-shirts. Um, John, where can people find you on social media? Do you have any pages you uh, frequent, um, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the like? I'm mainly a Facebook guy. In addition to my, my website, uh, as you, you mentioned on Don, uh, johncmcmanus.com, I've got a Facebook page by that same name. And I, I post fairly regularly, and there's a lot of really neat stuff there. Henry's dog makes a rare appearance. It's usually my my pup that's in the screen. What's your dog's name, Henry? You never talked about your pup. This this, this is Lulu. She's really pretty and not very smart. <laughs> that's the way we like them. <laughs> is she a beagle? She looks like a beagle man. She is no. She's a coon dog. Oh, she's really? all legs and lungs, man. If she gets out, you're not going to catch her. <laughs> <laughs> she's gone. <laughs> well, um, uh, Jeff, you got anything coming up you want to plug? Oh, well, we've got a we've got an air show in March, but I don't know if I need to plug it right now. Just uh, you know, dressing up when I can and taking pictures with people and and spreading the word about our greatest generation is what I do every day, though. Henry, you're the busiest man on the show. What do you got coming up? No, no, I wouldn't say that. Um, Going to be another We Happy Few five hundred six in uh, January. It'll be about uh, Peleliu. But uh, other than that, man, just what I got going on with you guys, John. Thank you so much for spending uh, your monday evening with us we greatly appreciate it and on behalf of behalf of our fans thank you so much and on behalf of myself jeff copsetta henry sledge and once again john c mcmanus we will talk to you guys next week thank you very much and uh, you guys have a great rest of your week this has been a digital 410 production (laughs) 